Hello and welcome to the Penguin Podcast. I'm Paul Smith and in today's episode I'm joined by an author who has been writing about music since the 70s. He's here to talk about his book, 1971, Never a Dull Moment, in which he makes the case for why 1971 was the golden year of rock. And he's brought along five objects that inspired the writing of his book. He's David Hepworth. David, welcome. Thank you very much for having me. No problem. In 1971, Never a Dull Moment, you take the reader on a journey through each month of 1971, charting the course of stars including David Bowie, The Rolling Stones, Pink Floyd, Marvin Gaye, Carole King, Led Zepp, or Zepp as they're known in the book, Joni Mitchell, one of my personal favourites, Rod Stewart and the solo Beatles. Where did the idea for this book come from? I wrote a column in Word magazine many years ago, and columns are very often written with a deadline hovering over you, you know, so you've got to have an idea pretty quickly. And I thought, 1971 was the Annus Mirabilis of the rock album. Discuss, you know what I mean? <laughs> and then I went on to write 800 words devoted to that theory. And unlike many theories that you come up with under a deadline, uh, this one looked better the more I thought about it, you know, as the yeah. weeks went by and people responded and thought, do you know you're right? Yeah. And, and the longer I looked at it, you know, over a period of time, the more records came in to kind of bolster my theory. As I always say to people, had there been a Mercury Music Prize in 1971, which, as you know, is, you know, open to UK records only... That you know, the contenders would have been David Bowie's Hunky Dory, Who's Who's Next, you know, Rolling Stone's Sticky Fingers, Paul McCartney's Ram, John Lennon's Imagine, Pink Floyd's Medal, you know, Need I Go and Led yeah. Zeppelin Four, you know, it goes on absolutely forever, you know, because that was the period of time before the music business started slowing down. So at the time, lots of people were putting out two albums a year. Yeah. And they were also at a perfect age, you know, they were kind of 27, 28. And they were, they were having their best ideas, or what turned out to be their best ideas, and having them very quickly and recording them very quickly. And so there's an excitement about those records from that year that I don't think applies to records from other years, you know. So that was, that was the point I started from. And uh, when I was later approached by a literary agent who wanted me to write a book. They had an idea for another book. And I said, no, I don't don't want to write that, but I will write a book about music in 1971. And so they said, fine. And, uh, you know, that's that's where the book came from. Well, I think we should hear an extract from it. This is read by your good self, and you are describing the last day of the 60s in this extract. On New Year's Eve 1970, Paul McCartney instructed his lawyers to issue a writ at the High Court in London to wind up the Beatles. The 60s ended that day, which was a year late, strictly speaking. You might say this was the last day of the pop era. The following day, which was Friday, was 1971. You might say this was the first day of the rock era. 1971 would also turn out to be the busiest, most creative, most innovative, most interesting and longest resounding year of that era. Nobody dreamed the rock era would last as long as it has done. In those days, nobody expected any form of entertainment to last, least of all rock music. In fact, people joined rock bands to get away from things that lasted. But many of those who first achieved stardom in 1971 
David Bowie, Rod Stewart, Pink Floyd, Led Zeppelin, Elton John and Joni Mitchell have since gone on to enjoy careers longer than their contemporaries who became novelists, politicians, captains of industry and actors, let alone their old friends who remained at school when they hit the road with the guitar over their shoulder. That was David reading from his book, 1971, Never a Dull Moment. David, as I mentioned earlier, you've brought a number of objects for us, the first of which, possibly due to its fragile quality, (laughs) is is a photocopy rather than the original of a photograph of yourself in 1971 looking pretty serious uh, and young. And if I was to compare this look to anybody off the top of my 37-year-old head, it would be sort of Dave Gilmore-esque. Oh, very good. You know, there you go. So well, I'll take that. Good. I'll, I'll I, take I thought that you as might. a compliment. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure I, I, didn't, I didn't dream I was achieving such heights of pulchritude. Well, you, there, there you are, uh, in front of what looks like a photo booth curtain, <laughs> and it's got a stamp on it that says... Uh, Department of something and prod. It's something official. We've yeah. forgotten. Do you remember where it was taken, what I d- city it was I, taken? I don't. I would imagine it was taken in London. You know, but it was in 1971. And, and the, you know, the thing that interests me looking at it now is that, you know, I've got my own children and grown-up children or whatever, and I've kind of watched them, you know, through their teenage years and their young 20s and so forth acquire the the things that you need to be trendy in whatever era it is, you know, in the 21st century or whatever, which only requires the acquisition of certain things, you know, the cool brands or whatever, groovy haircuts. I don't know. My point was, in 1971, all you had to do to reach the acme of hip was nothing. <laughs> nothing at all. You just let your hair grow. And hair was a massively important thing at the time, you know. Because in most jobs, most so-called straight jobs, you know, if you're going to be a teacher or you're going to work in a bank or whatever, you had to cut your hair and you had to cut it quite severely. So you had to make a choice at the age of 20, 21, whether you were going to go for a job that meant you had to do that or you were going to strike out somehow to find a job that didn't require you to do that, you know. So I was I was very fortunate, you know, to be able to have long hair and, you know, that's some pathetic excuse for a beard. Um, <laughs> but I think it's a really important thing to, to hang on to, you know, that it was the rock lifestyle it was really cheap. It was really instantly accessible, you know yeah. what I mean? You simply had to want it, you know. Yeah. Uh, and that's changed, you know, because like everything, it became a huge consumer industry. At that point, it wasn't. It was just in its infancy. And what were you doing at this at the time this I photograph was a student was when that was taken, you know. Was, what were you studying? I was studying, to be, uh, I was studying to be a teacher, actually. I was studying to be a drama teacher. Right. But uh, you know that was yeah that was that was in the summer of of 1971. I was actually working in the summer of 1971. I was working on the bins for Haringey Council in London. Glamorous, very glamorous. It was a great job in those days because there used to be a certain amount of folding money. You know, would, would yeah. change hands for kind of <laughs> takeaway difficult bits of you know detritus. And one never to be forgotten day, I was promoted from the normal runs, which were in Tottenham or, you know, slightly less glamorous locales. I was moved. They said, You've got, you're going to go on the Highgate run. Very nice. And the next thing I knew, I was emptying Ringo Starr's bin. 
Now, can you imagine how exciting that was in 1971? I can. <laughs> Only just. <laughs> I'm Ring, Ringo Starr's bend, you know, and he lived next door to Lulu and Morris Gibb. You were quite exciting, but not as exciting as a Beatles bin, for goodness yeah. sake. Yeah. Did, you, did you have a sift? Uh, no, I think I'd t- I think Maureen was actually, you know, at the back window doing the washing up, looking right. out as I collected the bin from round the back of their house in Compton Avenue in Highgate. They, they don't, obviously doesn't live there anymore. Yeah. Um, but you know that was that was my brush with started yeah. in the year ninety seven. And, and so you went straight from there to rock journalism. <laughs> I thought yes, <laughs> and now I'm peddling the story still. You know, forty six years later or whatever it is. What were you like at that time? What was I? like i don't know you know i was just i was kind of i was enjoying life as as much as i possibly could you know fun was cheap yeah uh, you know we lived in a small five of us uh, men lived in a flat above the leeds permanent building society wood green high road the rent between five of us was £13 a week. I see. <laughs> Which it was a good job it was as cheap as that, you know, because we probably only had about £4 a week to spend between, yeah. between the lot of us, you know. It had quite a simple life. And my life, any any kind of spare time, was spent in record shops, just hanging about record shops, just spending, just looking, go, going through the, you know, the racks in record stops, whether it was whether it was Harem in Crouch and or, you know, Happy Day if I went into Soho and you could go to Harlequin or One Stop or Dobells or HMV in these places and just go through, you know. And so what I learnt about music was very often learnt by reading about it, first of all. Yeah. Reading about it on the covers. I read about it in music papers. But also read the covers of albums and got to know producers, but not just producers, engineers, you know. You knew the name of the companies that manufactured (laughs) the sleeves, you know, all this kind of stuff. You just absolutely knew it. You you completely inhaled this material, and it's still there in me now. Well, that seems like a good idea to go into another extract where you talk about hanging around in record shops. This is another extract from 1971, Never a Dull Moment, read by David Hepworth. I was born in 1950. For a music fan, that's the winning ticket in the lottery of life. I grew up in the 1960s. At the time, we didn't know these were going to become the 60s and follow us around forever. Those years seemed no more unique than any other 10-year period. I was 13 on that Friday in November 1963 when JFK was shot. I felt a bat squeak of patriotism a few months later when the Beatles conquered America. I was 15 when Bobby Gregg's snare shot announced Bob Dylan's Like a Rolling Stone. Bruce Springsteen, who was just six months older, heard it while he was in the car with his mother. He later described it as somebody kicking open the door to your mind. I came of age in 1971, the same year that Rock did. At the time, I was at college and spending what little spare cash I had on records. Like many similarly inclined young men, and we were mainly men, all my consumer appetites were channelled through the record shop. Jerry Seinfeld says that for the first ten years of his life, the only clear thought in his mind was get candy. We were like that with records. All the cash that came my way, the £40 I had each term for anything more than board, 
food and tuition, the pay I got from holiday jobs, birthday gifts from distant relatives, and record tokens, obviously, was instantly converted into albums. There was simply nothing else I wanted to spend money on. I spent every idle moment hanging around record shops, being in the presence of, learning the names of, combing the covers of, and sometimes even listening to those things I wanted that I could not have. It was a life spent in pursuit of a gratification endlessly deferred. At the time, 1971 didn't feel like a particularly exceptional year. Nobody talked about the year in rock back then. Nobody tried to take the temperature of the business. Nobody pontificated about where things were going or had been. The habit of looking back, which is now so much part of the music media game, and of which this book is an example, hadn't been invented. It's only in retrospect, and only quite recently at that, since the great digital musical Niagara has made it possible to have all 50 years of recorded rock and roll at our fingertips, to shuffle it, sort it, and subject it to endless listification, that I've come to realise just what an exceptional year my 21st year was. One of the inspirations that's led you to write this book and just to be a writer in general is our next object. Please describe it for us. It's in your hands. It's, it's, uh, it's a book that I think I probably bought in about 1970, 1971. It's titled A Wop a Lot Bamboom by Nick Cohen. And, uh, you know, he kind of pioneered a whole way of writing about music that I always found very exciting, you know, that it had... you Because know, most people, when they write about music, they're not writing about music at all. Writing about career or politics or whatever, and he he just had a way of writing about music that was just very very bracing, and so it's been a book that I've read you know many many times since. And of course, the great thing about Nick Cohen was that um, he thought when he wrote this, you know, late sixties, he thought it was all over. He said, it's all got too complicated. Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, I don't want to hear that kind of thing, you know. My kind of pop music is, you know, is Elvis Presley, Little Richard, is PJ Proby, is Phil Spector or whatever. It's got to be hit records, it's got to be instant gratification. It's, pop's not meant to get sophisticated. And so I, I, I was really like that idea, you know, that he... He was objective and subjective at the same time, which I think you've got to be about pop music. You know, none of us write about any of this <laughs> stuff, for goodness sake. You know, and I, I like that. You know, that kind of playful attitude to, to, to pop music. I don't think there's enough of it. Yeah, you know, well, think... this is it. To me, it's very important, but it's also it's frivolous. Absolutely, it's, it's fun. It's meant to be fun. It's like was it? I don't know who said it. I can't remember who said it about football. Of all the unimportant things in the world, it's the most important. Yeah. And pop music's <laughs> just the same, you know what I mean? Yeah. It's completely unimportant, and at the same time, it's important. So how much research did you have to put into this book? Because you, you've experienced in writing about music and obviously were there at the time and all that kind of thing. Did you have to go back and double-check oh, lots and lots of things? Yes, definitely. Because I've learned the, the wisdom of... There's a wonderful quote of Mark Twain's, he says, it's not the things you don't know that trip you up. 
It's the things you know for certain that just ain't so. <laughs> and that's really good advice. Yeah. And so you think you remember things in a certain order, you know. So yes, there's a lot there's a lot of checking, you know, to go plough through a year's worth of melody makers and rolling stones and so forth, you know, and uh, and get the chronology as right as I could. The main decision taken by the editor is that if you're gonna write this book, it's gotta be chronological. You've just gotta do it like that. And so you're trying to make it chronological and also simultaneously thematic. So that's a bit of a twist, you know. Yes. It's very hard work compared yeah. to magazine work. Most of my writing work's magazine work where you get feedback really quickly. Yeah. And here you just spend six months, you know, did... hacking away at the coalface and then you send it off. And did you listen to a lot of the music to relive it? Absolutely. Definitely. Um, I suppose it's essential, really, for this, for this oh, book, I would got, say. You've got to do. Uh, you know, a lot of it still, I've still got on vinyl, so that was great fun. It's also a job made immeasurably easier by the internet. Yeah. So if you just want to remind yourself, you know, Frank Zappa and the Mothers of Invention live on stage in 1971, it'll be there on YouTube, you know, and it'll certainly be there on Spotify or whatever, you know, you've got... I mean, that's that. the big challenge about writing anything like this nowadays is the amount of available source material grows exponentially. Mm -hmm. If you'd written this book in 1980, there wouldn't have been a huge amount to know. Yeah. That stuff is just appearing absolutely all the time. Things that you didn't know about or things you, you slightly knew about. Well, it's time for another extract from the audiobook of 1971, Never a Dull Moment. Here you talk about one of the key albums from 1971, David Bowie's Hunky Dory. They recorded the new album in two weeks in June 1971 as the astronauts of the Apollo 15 mission used their buggy to go for a drive on the moon. The 19-year-old native Australian Yvonne Gulagong began her victorious Wimbledon campaign and the situation in Northern Ireland deteriorated further with the killing of more British soldiers. The recording was followed by two weeks of mixing. Bowie, who didn't care for being in the studio, wasn't there for the latter stage. The basic band, guitarist Mick Ronson, drummer Woody Woodmansey and bassist Trevor Boulder learned the songs from the demos that Bowie and his publisher Bob Grace had put together in order to get other artists like Peter Noon interested in his songs. They even wrote a letter to Dudley Moore to see if he was available. It's not clear if he ever responded. Most of the vocals were first take, even the complicated ones. There was no use of punching in, the technique whereby vocal performances could be assembled line by line, word by word, let alone, as is quite common today, syllable by syllable. Imperfections were turned into features. The phone that can be heard ringing at the end of Life on Mars was from a payphone in the bathroom which the musicians could use to make outgoing calls. Nobody knew the number and consequently it never rung until that day. Although not a hit, Hunky Dory perfectly captures the zeitgeist of 1971. From the reference to space travel on its signature song, Life on Mars, to the two new pens to have a go in Andy Warhol, from the oval teen coziness of the old English saying that provided its title, to the nostalgia for the silver screen which suffused its cover picture, from the Denmark Street lilt of Kooks, his song for his first child, to the thin-lipped, New York snarl, a queen bitch. It is, like so many of the great albums of 1971, 
neither one thing nor another, and gloriously so. In the summer of 1971, David Bowie enjoyed one perfect, delicious moment when he had nothing to lose, everything to gain, and all the right people behind him. He had no record company giving him advice. He had a bunch of musicians hanging on to his coattails who knew that it was either this or dragging their tails back to Hull to become hairdressers. He had a producer who needed a record to be seen as a success. He had a head full of postcards from his recent travels in America and nights out in the Sombrero Club and no fan following beyond a bunch of people who asked no more than to be pleasantly surprised. What came out was a unique kaleidoscope of previously suppressed feelings, grand gestures, borrowed clothes, gauche versifying, and more important than all these things combined, great tunes. Hunky Dory may have been composed at the piano in Haddon Hall and recorded in a smoky room in Soho. It seemed to have a heart as big as all outdoors. That's one of my favourite lines in the book. Oh, um, having a heart as big as all outdoors. Your next object is a copy of Hunky Dory. Let's have a look at it. That's the actual one that I bought. I think I probably bought that at Derek's Records in Turpite Lane <laughs> in 1971. And, uh, you know, not an awful lot of people did. There was a lot of talk about David Bowie. You know, he'd got loads of publicity by appearing in, in a dress or a gown, as he called it, on the cover of The Melody Maker, yeah. you know which was considered a very, very advanced thing to do. Uh, but this record came out and, and wasn't a hit, despite lots of kind of media interests. And actually, I think, oh, you pretty thing, is it? Oh, yeah, it was. One of those things was actually Tony Blackburn's Record of the Week on Radio 1. And that was in the days when 25 million people listened to yeah. Tony Blackburn. And it still wasn't a hit. It wasn't at all the following year, Ziggy Stardust. That was the kind of breakthrough. But it was all in place. And it fascinates me. You know, I've written quite a lot in this book about David Bowie. And actually, at one point, writing the book, I thought, do you know, you could write a book about David Bowie's 1971. Yeah. Because it's completely action-packed. Because he goes to America in, in February, you know, and has two weeks, three weeks there. Completely off the leash. He goes to see the Velvet Underground. He hears the Stooges. He, he you know, kind of meets Gene Vincent. You know, he has the idea of Ziggy Stardust. So in the year 1971, you know, he releases Man Who Sold the World, records and releases Hunky Dory, and records all but one track of Ziggy Stardust from The Spiders from Mars. And so if all you knew about <laughs> David Bowie was what he did in 1971, you'd know an awful lot about David Bowie. Bowie was announced by the New York Times, I think, at the time, as the most intellectually brilliant man to make <laughs> pop music. You know, where the hell have they got that from? You know? <laughs> <laughs> this is complete nonsense. It's got nothing to do with making pop music at all. You know, but they, they, that was part of his image. You know, so yes, I loved Hunky Dory, and I still do. It's still my favourite David Bowie record. I prefer uncool David Bowie. I hate cool David Bowie. Yeah. I liked him when he was gauche, when he was trying everything. You know, and he appeared on Top of the Pops in 1971 playing the piano with Peter Noon out of Herman's Hermits. That's what David Bowie was. He was a Denmark Street chancer. Yeah. You know, he was not the chameleon that everybody writes about now, particularly now that, sadly, he's dead. So he's kind of recreated as this omniscient figure who who saw absolutely everything happening in popular music. No, he didn't. He was trying like everybody else. He was trying to get a hit record. Yeah. Nothing is more important than a hit record. 
Doesn't matter who you are. Absolutely. Well, we'll hear another extract from 1971, Never a Dull Moment Now. In this extract, you talk about what the world was like in 1971. The last days of pounds, shillings and pence. Average salary for a working man, £2,000 per annum. A house in an up-and-coming area of North London worth £20,000. Bitter, 11p a pint. Cigarettes, 27p a packet. Long-playing records, £2.15. Bernie Inns, rump steak, button mushrooms, tomato, chips, roll and butter, apple pie and cream for 80p. Barclay card, the only credit card. Two-thirds of the population don't have a bank account. Every night, a detachment of Coldstream guards marches to the City of London to mount guard on the Bank of England. Three TV channels, BBC One Saturday Night Lineup with Cliff Richard, Dixon of Doc Green and Rolf Harris. Some shows in colour, others still in black and white. Henry Cooper advertising the great smell of brutes. Jimmy Savile promoting car seatbelts. Clunk click every trip. No commercial radio. The Daily Mirror sells four and a half million copies every day. Major cities have a morning and evening newspaper. No celebrity magazines. Wartime titles are of valet and titbits still popular. No mobiles. 70,000 red telephone boxes. Press button B to get your money back. The only ringtone is a ringing tone. Overseas calls via the operator. Police in touch with the station via police boxes. Urgent news delivered via telegram. Train tickets checked by eye, not machine. No magnetic strips. Most people have never seen a computer in their lives. So we, we discuss a bit of social history there. We dip into what, what it was like to be alive in 1971 as well as being a record fan. Can you talk a bit more about this side of the book, please? It was really important to me to do this because most music history books now are written by people who weren't there. <laughs> you know, well, I was, so I wanted to bring that in. And so assembling a picture of kind of London in 1971... It took me ages because yeah, I had to consult my memory and then go and check. Yeah. And all my friends and acquaintances and neighbours and colleagues who were similarly of my vintage, I, you know, I used to say to them, come on, just tell me anything you remember, you know. And there were these long conversations with people where they'd come up with little n nuggets. Like one of my neighbours at a party said, no spitting signs on buses. <laughs> I thought, God, yes, you're right, you know, and I went back and checked, and sure enough. So I wanted to get that sense of the, of the kind of the unglamorous fog of daily life, you know what I mean? And we nowadays, all of us can partake for a short period of time in the good life. We can go up the end of the road and there'll be a trendy restaurant probably, it doesn't matter where you live, you know what I mean? People go to health clubs and, you know, they can live a bit of David Beckham's life for a short period yeah. of time. You couldn't do that at the time. You know, you were stuck completely in the life that you had. There was no escape, which I think accounted for the huge appeal of records, of music, because 
you wouldn't hear anything about this stuff, you know, unless you read The Enemy and The Melody Maker, you know. And so I wanted to have that feeling in the book, you know, that this was the world out of which this music came. That world seems like Hogarth's London, but the music doesn't. The music lives in the now. Well, talking of what life was like in 1971 and the technology or lack of, we don't have an internet in 1971, but we do have your next object, which is a copy of Alternative London by Nicholas Saunders, which has a very groovy cover. Absolutely. Orange and, I suppose, op art. And uh, can you read us an extract from this artefact, please? This was a guide for kind of would-be hippies, you know, published for 30p, surviving in the smoke, as it says on the back here, you know. And information was just so hard to find. If you wanted to know what was playing at your local movie theatre, you had to find the phone number and you had to ring them up and hope that somebody would tell you, you know. There was certainly no recorded message or anything like that. And so this book has got all kinds of help in in all kinds of things like vegetarian restaurants and uh, where you can get things for cheap, sex, contraception, family welfare, guides to the left, how to protest or whatever. But I just found this bit, this was... (laughs) Travelling to the country, there's a section called Travelling to the Country, tells you how to get the Victoria Coach Station and so forth. But then it's got a section called Milk Trains, and it says, A reader tells me that you can travel free on trains leaving London stations at about 5am. It's traditional to tip the guard who will slow the train enough for you to jump off at whatever station you want. Now, was that true? You know, <laughs> I maybe it was. And um, it says, if you are out of cash, you can still travel by train if you say so and promise to pay on your return, <laughs> asked the booking clerk. And it's quite possible that people did those kind yeah. of things. You know, it was a, it was a relatively innocent world. Was this a significant book for you? Did you utilise it a lot? Well, it's just these kind of books. They used to come out once a year, you know, and uh, and if you had them, you know, if you could afford to buy them, they were passed from hand to hand like valuable survival guides because they contained the information that nowadays is just, it's absolutely everywhere. It's on your phone, you know, you can find out absolutely anything all the time. Things were hard to find out. And, you know, it again, the value that you accord to music is in direct proportion to your difficulty in acquiring it. The easier it is to acquire, the less value you give to it. The harder it is to acquire, the more precious it is, you know, and that's just the case. There's there's no gain saying that, no, it seems to me, no, at all. It know? reminds me of my teens. I spent all my pocket money on records. And then I got to university and everybody was like, why aren't you drinking? Yeah. And I'm I'm like, there's a record out that I want to get on Friday and that's the end of it. I'll, yeah. have, I'll have another half of Coke, please. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I am also one of the <laughs> one of the weak willed enthralled to pop music and yeah. to rock music. Right. So let's hear one final extract from the audiobook of nineteen seventy one, Never a Dull Moment. The sound of nineteen seventy one is the sound many acts are still trying to make today. You can hear Rod Stewart and Lindisfarne in Mumford and Sons. Sly and the Family Stone all over hip-hop. The spirit of Joni Mitchell's Blue in Laura Marling and a thousand other acoustic blue stockings. Pink Floyd's Metal in the tunes to which call centre workers chill out in Ibiza. And Led Zeppelin in numberless generations of young men who take up electric guitars to slay dragons 
and attract girls. The sound of 1971 is all around us today, in ads for sports shoes, in the soundtracks of movies, at moments when TV producers and similar mood-mongerers feel the need to reach for something reliably hip and soulful. When they were looking for a note on which to close out the 2012 Olympic Games, they reached not for Muse or Coldplay, but for the Who's Barbara O'Reilly. They knew that no contemporary sound would hit the spot that 1971 album track hit. It crackles in a way records simply don't crackle anymore for the simple reason that they're made in a different way. David Bowie's Hunky Dory isn't an archetype of anything. However, only in 1971 could a still unproven artist make such an album while out of contract, starting it with a Tin Pan Alley song like Oh You Pretty Things, which was first put before the public in a recording by the lead singer of Herman's Hermits, finishing it with the Freudian maze, which is the Bewley Brothers, wrapping it in a picture of him dragged up as Veronica Lake, then getting a major record company to put it out. In 1971, there wasn't a little indie niche you could insert a record like that into. The middle of the road was the only place to be. Underground was overground. Anything could be a hit. It was into this moment of panic and opportunity that all these 1971 masterpieces were hurled. There were background factors behind this pop renaissance. The fact that the Beatles had broken up meant there was a prize to play for. The record business was expanding at such a rate that the company signed up anyone they thought might have an outside shot. Music was king, TV was nowhere, movies were in retreat, radio was growing, record stores were sprouting up like coffee shops, and the only material goods that anyone who counted was remotely interested in were black, vinyl and 12 inches across. The glories of the 60s had been on 7-inch black vinyl singles. The 70s were all about albums, which in the previous decade had been strictly for middle-aged swingers and fans of Ray Conniff. The numbers that were sold in the 60s would be dwarfed by 70s numbers, which were driven by the mania for stereo, the hi-fi setups that could reproduce it, and the new mass audience made up of baby boomers for whom a hi-fi would be the first piece of furniture they installed in the damp bedsits they were provisionally called home. If any of my children were to be cast away in the year 1971, they would be lost. They wouldn't be able to calculate in pounds, shillings and pence, and would be frightened by the fact that there were no seat belts in cars and you could smoke on the London Underground. Surprised that the only people who could afford to travel between continents were millionaires, and taken aback by the fact that there were just three channels on the TV. No such thing as a personal computer, and no openly gay public figures. However, they would feel entirely at home with the records that were made that year. Did you enjoy recording the audiobook? It sounds... It's, it's, <laughs> it's very exhausting. It takes four days. Or well, this is it. I was going to say, how long does it take? I think it took four days. It might have been three and a half. 
And apparently there are actors there who can do these things really quickly. Apparently you can do it really quickly if you read it off an iPad because right. you then don't have to drop the... Yeah. You don't have to hear the sound of the paper rustling. And somebody told me the record was something like 18 minutes without stopping. I didn't do anything like as quick as that. Well, in that clip we heard you talking about the 7-inch record being a 60s artefact. We have perhaps the one of the last remnants of the 60s here with us as your last object can you describe it to us? This is my copy. It's actually 1971. This is actually my copy of the Rolling Stones' Brown Sugar, backed by their fantastic version of Chuck Berry's Let It Rock, recorded live at Leeds University, which is still the best Chuck Berry cover of all time. This was the only record you needed. This was Instant Party. You know, this came out spring 1971. And I think it was probably the last great Rolling Stones single, really. It was kind of made as a single. And I kind of grew up with the Rolling Stones not as the kind of great rock and roll band. I grew up with them as the the great dance band. Mm-hmm. Satisfaction, Get Off My Cloud, and all these things. They were dance records. And so, so all you needed to have a party was some kind of old stereo that somehow somebody had managed to buy from Tottenham Court Road or whatever. And a few records, including Brown Sugar, and I, I do write about this in the book. I think the other thing you needed was a Watney's Party 7, which is a huge, great can of beer uh, con- containing seven pints. I, I did think. wonder what that was. It, I, I was going to look it up on the internet, oh, but I thought... Oh, sorry, I didn't... <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. That's a thing you wouldn't miss at all. <laughs> and, uh, and the only way to open a Watney's Party 7 was by kind of plunging a, you know, a knife pretty much into the centre <laughs> of the middle of it. And if it had been shaken up in any way, that meant most of its contents would end up on the ceiling. Innocent pleasures in Party those time. days. You know. But... Um, <laughs> You know, so this is 40, what is it, how are we talking about, 46 years ago. So if you go back, and this record, if I played it now, it sounds just as good as it did in 1971. And if I went back 46 years from 1971, when does that take me to? Into the 1920s? Yeah. <laughs> That's a heck of a passage of time. Yes. For music to endure for. And if you listen to the records of the 1920s, they're amazing performances. You know, but the records themselves are quite crude because recording technology hadn't got that far at that point. In 1971, it got as good as it was was ever going to get. I think it got more sophisticated afterwards, which made it worse. And I don't know if you'd agree with this, as somebody who spent your time (laughs) in recording studios, that nowadays, because you can change everything endlessly, you tend to change everything endlessly. You know, I, I'm, not, I'm certainly not arguing that music was great then and is terrible now. I'm not. I'm saying that rock albums, they were at their best then. Yeah. You, you can't do that nowadays as, as easily. Hip-hop is way better. Well, obviously, it didn't exist back then. <laughs> we're in the hip-hop era now. You yeah. know what I mean? That was the rock era. It was a different time. Absolutely. We'll leave 1971 there, but let's talk about your your upcoming book, which is Uncommon People, The Rise and Fall of the Rockstars. What can we expect from this book, please? Well, it's the, the Rise and Fall of the Rockstars, 1955 to 1995. And so, you know, what I wanted to do was just write about rockstars as a kind of breed. Because it interests me that I don't think you can be a rock star anymore. The mystique that rock stars came out of has gone. Everybody knows everything about everything. (laughs) You didn't in those days. What interests me is the application of the word, we talk about rock star footballers, we talk about rock star politicians, rock star chefs, rock star traders in the city. 
what are we talking about? You know, what, because what's interesting is that we we accord rock star with certain characteristics, you know, recklessness, stylishness, you know, don't give a damnness. And as all these things have disappeared from our lives, you know, because we all live very controlled lives nowadays, we're all very afraid of things going wrong, of, of shame descending on us, you know, at any moment. The more that that is the case, the more that we hark back to this idea of the rock star, you know. So what I wanted to do is just trace how that rock star archetype grew from 1955 onwards. So, you know, so it starts with Little Richard and it finishes with Kurt Cobain, who was the person who found being a rock star just too much of a pressure. He felt he had to live up to the idea of being a rock star, to contribute to his sad end, you know. So it's 40 years, 40 chapters, 40 people and 40 incidents that build up that story of how the rock star grew, waxed and waned. That's sounds, the idea. Sounds good to me. Well, I hope to be reading that in about May time. I it comes think. out in May, yes. Excellent. Well, thanks very much for being here and recording this podcast with us, David. Have a nice book. I'm trying to think of a word that would, <laughs> would, would be... Uh, coming out into paperback. Have yeah. a nice... Well, ha- I've done my share of interviewing musicians, <laughs> and, and what you usually say at the end is, good luck with the tour. This is it. I was... I was, I was <laughs> Uh, yeah, good, I was. I can't ask you where we, where you're playing just, next. Just say good luck with the tour. It applies to everybody all the time. Thank you, David. Good luck with the tour. Johnny Marr, set the boy free. From roaming the streets of Manchester to constantly pushing musical boundaries as the most loved guitarist Britain has ever produced, Johnny Marr's memoir is the true history of music, told by one of its very own legends. Not bad for a kid with a guitar. I thought about that phrase a lot. When I met Joe and introduced myself as a frustrated musician, it was because I was. When you're young and starting out, the thing you crave most is to be heard and to get a chance to do what you love. Fame and money and status are dreams, but being heard is what you need. You need it because you've worked hard at trying to get good enough and you have to know if you are right. If you get to be heard and find that you're right, you can communicate your ideas and visions about everything to people who you hope will like it, people like you, and that's being an artist. I grew up looking for a way to make the world more exciting and more comprehensible, and I was fortunate enough to find a way to do it with something I loved. It didn't mean that life became instantly easy or less incomprehensible. Sometimes it made things harder, but it gave me a direction and a passion, and that's all you need. There was a time in my career when I was referred to as a journeyman or gun for hire, as if joining bands, playing the guitar on people's records and collaborating with my favourite artists was anything other than totally great. My choices have always made sense to me. I followed a mission that I was lucky enough to be given as a kid and my nature always stayed the same. I was first known for being in a very big band and it was everything I dreamed and more. I worked hard to put it together and then make it a success with the others and as great as we were, The Smiths could only have ever lasted as long as we did because of the differences in my and Morris's personalities. I understand the appeal and security of staying with the same group for 40 years, but I couldn't ever imagine doing it myself. It was never in my stars to be doing the same thing forever. I'm good at running groups and I've done it since being a kid, but I was always my own entity and I always needed to feel free. I wanted to keep getting better and learn about all the different ways of creating guitar music, and the only way I knew how to do it was to take things as far as I could in whatever situation I was in 
and then move on. I've had the best job in the world. I've joined my favourite bands with my favourite people and my heroes became my friends. I love my work and I've always appreciated the good luck that's come with it. I've never found out why I was so attracted to the guitar as a kid and why it had to accompany me through life. Being a guitar player has been my identity, to the outside world and to myself. It's been that way since I saw my first one in a shop window as a five-year-old boy and I've never known life any other way since that moment. Building my own signature guitar was a total obsession. Once I had a prototype, I used it in every situation I could think of to make it as versatile as possible. I gigged it and gigged it while constantly making improvements, and after playing hundreds of shows with it, I brought it into the studio and then took it to another level with orchestras on film soundtracks. By the time I'd finished it, my signature Jaguar had evolved into what I considered to be perfection, and it was only then that I gave it to Fender to remake faithfully so that everyone with my name on is identical to mine. When it finally became available, the Fender Johnny Marr Jaguar received the award for Best International Instrument, and that felt like a real achievement. I can't say what it is that's happened in my life that I'm most proud of. The bands I've been in, finding the love of my life, my kids, the songs, or having a flower named after me. For a Mancunian Irish kid with a guitar, it's all been pretty good. I may be most proud of the fact that I'm still doing what I've always done, and I hope I always will. It's something to be proud of, that, and having my own guitar named after me, and painted white. The same as the one I got at Emily's. Set the Boy Free, written and read by Johnny Marr, is available now to download and own on Audible and iTunes.